Greetings and salutations, and welcome to another episode of the Cult Spark Podcast. This is your host, Bob Taylor. Thank you all for joining us once again. This week on the program, we have the return of Tulsa Voice film critic Joe Oshansky, a good friend of mine. He's done a little bit of writing for Cult Spark itself. And in June, we had him on the show to talk about the Twin Peaks revival on Showtime. At the time, we had only seen the first four episodes, but uh, Joe and I are such huge Twin Peaks fans that we wanted to start breaking it down immediately, so we brought you 40 minutes of Twin Peaks talk then. However, with the season finale and possible series finale, potentially the last look into the world of Twin Peaks that we'll ever see, airing last Sunday, we wanted to come back and talk again about how the show wrapped up, uh, the shocking cliffhanger that the show went out on, the divisive finale. I mean, it's been, it was, I love those last two hours, but it was a mind-blowing experience and just a whirlwind of emotions seeing the the way that David Lynch decided to wrap up the show in, in unconventional means, to be sure. So we wanted to bring Joe back on. We promised you then that we would do it. We have done it. Joe is back on the show for this episode. We talk about the finale. We talk about the season as a whole, the highs and lows. We discuss whether we think this truly is the last we're ever going to see of Twin Peaks or if it's possible we get another film a la Fire Walk With Me or a season four. Uh, we really do a deep dive into it. So thanks to Joe for coming back on the show. Hope everybody enjoys listening and we'll get to the conversation right now. So Joe, we're recording this on Monday, right at about 10 o'clock. So it's been about exactly 24 hours since the lights went off at the Palmer residence. Have you recovered yet? Still unpacking it to some degree, but like, uh, yeah, it's really kind of hard to take it in as a whole, even now that it's done, you know, um, because of your expectations, I guess. It's kind of silly to have expectations out of it, sort of, because obviously, I mean, we talked about this a lot, uh, when we did the original, um, I guess, how many episodes were we in when we did the first podcast about this? Yeah, we, sh- we should mention but, this. I'll mention it in the intro, too, but uh, this is part two of our sort of Twin Peaks podcast, because we did part one, I think it was after the first four. I think we recorded... We recorded an episode after the first four. So if you haven't listened to that and you're a big Twin Peaks fan and you love this season, go listen to that one and then come back and listen to this one where we're going to talk about the finale in the season as a whole. Right. But, I mean, we were like – I think we both came to the agreement of that one. It's like you're just going to have to wait until the end to see what – you know, whether it basically sticks the landing or, you know, how you feel about it or what it's even going to be, which – and I don't know if expectations is a a different portion of this conversation, but it turns out the return to me at least seems completely different, a completely different title intent wise than what we all thought, you know, it was going to be rescuing Dale Cooper or saving Dale Cooper and it turned out to be something else entirely. But, um, and the way that went about that, I guess I kind of feel like it has this resonance to like the the original twin peaks. Obviously it was, it was kind of like, had these meta comments on other TV shows and movies and stuff like that. And I think this season did that same thing with just a different set of influences. I think the Twilight Zone probably a big one for this one in terms of like more sci-fi referencing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But as far as I, how I actually feel about it, I don't know if I want to somehow I think I'll need to do that. Um, just the, the marathon, you know, as much, you know, or as much as you can marathon 18 hours of television, you know, in a day or whatever, a day and a half just to like get that that momentum of immersion and and get that second look at it all knowing what we know 
and finding all those little missing pieces and clues that you missed the first time around. And uh, I think it's one of those things that like its integrity is going to be borne out by, you know, repeated viewings and, and a lot of concerted thoughts. Basically, I'm, I don't know how you feel about that. It's it's a tough, tough season of TV to evaluate. It's just so different from everything else that's out there and everything that we expect from prestige TV and peak TV. And it's just like David Lynch has no time for sort of, you know, the patterns that a lot of those big event TV shows fall into. Uh, when, we, when we talked after the first four episodes, I really liked the first four, and I remember we were at that point. I was starting to get concerned about too much Dougie because at that point Dougie had already started, and we were like, "Well, how many more episodes is this going to go on for? How many more episodes can we tolerate this going on for?" And I, right. I, I believe I was like, "Well, I'm fine with it as long as we get Cooper back soon," which did not happen. Uh, we, right. had, we had Dougie for a large stretch of the series. By the halfway point, I was telling people, here's how I feel about it. I think it's a pretty terrible Twin Peaks continuation, but it is a fascinating new David Lynch project using the pieces of Twin Peaks. And that's kind of how I felt. Okay. And that's kind of how I felt in the middle of it. Like, this is not what I wanted from further Twin Peaks, but man, is this some good, you know, straight David Lynch stuff. So but, how's that? But you know. yeah, well, that sort of eroded, and I think it ended so strong that now I'm back. You know what? That that was wrong. This was this this was a great David Lynch joint, and it was a great season three of Twin Peaks. The last, I mean, I adored the two part finale last night. I absolutely loved those two episodes, and I even thought the show had started to pick up strength again. I guess two or three episodes before that. So the show to me is really like the first four episodes are pretty good. The last four episodes are pretty great, and then you have that amazing, you know, the atom bomb episode in the middle. Yeah. And you uh-huh. could probably argue it's a little too long and maybe was padded between those first four and those last four, but it just ended so strong. I'm like, no, I, I, this is what Twin Peaks needed to be when it came back, and I'm totally fine with it. And well, all, all those worries, all those worries in the middle about too much Dougie and too many side tangents, they faded over the last three weeks. And then, of course, the payoff of when Cooper finally does wake up. I think that was like a Rudy moment where everybody comes out of their seats somehow. You know what I mean? Oh, it's like it, I, I, I was just, I, my neighbor, the one who's actually running his thing right now. You can hear um, he was like out in the hallway. He just okay. he's a musician and he had just like soundproofed his door. And he was outside telling one of the neighbors about how, yeah, you won't get your shit out here anymore. And they were standing out in front of my door, which I was like, and, uh, right around the time that. Dougie woke up and all they heard was "fuck yeah!" I was like, "Oh, I mean," and it they were was... like, they both looked at my door and they're just like, "Oh, except for that guy." It's like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm not and ashamed it, to admit I got a little teary-eyed. It was an amazing moment. It, it, when this, when the show, I guess, really the thing about the show, and it didn't do it in every episode, but when it did it, it hit on a kind of really deeply ingrained emotional level. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you got, I got chills from Cooper, or I got. You know, waking up where I got chills from at the scene between, like, say, Andy and Lucy or something like that. You know, something that was like maybe referential to the first show, or you can tell that I guess if that show, if if the new series wasn't that interested in doing what you know fans really wanted it to do, it was you know throwing out these little nuggets that you know like warm their hearts a little and bit at least. This, in the of all that. And some of them were very satisfying. There was the right. uh, Ed and Norma. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean the the Ed and Norma resolution was fantastic. 
I'm not going to lie. I got a little verklempt. <laughs> so, um, so some of that stuff really worked. Um, I, I mean, I, I told a friend yesterday who had – he watched the first episode, thought it was too weird and said, I, I, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go back to it and saw that I was raving about the finale online. And I'm like, look, you should totally watch. It's, it's challenging. It goes down some tangents. It probably shouldn't. But there's enough genius sprinkled along the way – that it's worth it to stick with it, and then when it finally right. get, and then when it finally gets really going in the last like four episodes, it's gonna blow you away. Well, yeah, I mean, just I, I think it's because of where the place where Frost and and uh, Lynch meet in the middle, mm-hmm. because you can hear you can feel Frost pulling the the strings of the conventional elements, right? And then you know Lynch's additions, you know, work within all that. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain I, I don't know that I've seen a sh- I mean, even even having seen the other twin, you know, everything about Twin Peaks, basically, um, I don't think I've seen a, a version of this that was like playing it on both sides of that way and making it inscrutable often and then often make complete sense and be totally satisfying, mm-hmm. you know, and, and wrap up just enough of those narrative threads to leave you hopefully feeling satisfied. I'm not too sure how I feel about that exactly still. I mean. As far, but we'll get to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just nothing, nothing, nothing. What I expected it to wind, you know, wind up being what happened. You know what I mean? Right. And that's really the joy of it. That was that was the joy of it going through it is not knowing where it's going to wind up. And even now that we've, you know, know where it wound up, it's still a mystery and still compelling enough to feel like that dream within a dream thing you were talking about. Right. Or the dream logic, the dream logic at work. Right, which is the first. We'll get into the Q and A portion of the podcast now, Joe. And that was the first. We're gonna, first. We're going to get into how satisfied we were by the finale because it's divisive. I mean, all you have to do is go on Twitter. The finale, the last five minutes, the fact that everything's not wrapped up nice and tidy has been very divisive. Okay, yeah. First of all, should we just write off everything that happens Sunday as oh, it's crazy Lynch dream logic, or do we benefit by you know trying to figure out and interpret and unravel the mystery of exactly what happened? I guess your mileage might vary on that. I don't know. Um, because you could argue it's almost not even supposed to make sense that this is what Lynch does, and you know d- dreams and the dreaming and talking about the dreamer. This is a motif that's that's repeatedly brought up in the show. Yeah, exactly. It's so you part, could just say uh, the whole thing runs on dream logic. I'm not putting too much thought into it. It's just you know great performances, pretty to look at, kept me shocked. I, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. But that, that's where you see like Frost coming in and giving it that narrative backbone that right. uh, with just enough flesh on it to keep keep it all together and like beg the question, beg the mystery, beg the, you know, kind of like, um, you know, like how the Zodiac thing, you know, Fincher Zodiac is a great, great mystery and it's an incredible movie. And part of the reason it's so compelling is because they'll never really know, uh, who right. that person was. And I think that kind of works on that same level with this too. So, I mean, yeah, there's, I don't know how much you benefit from trying to like deconstruct every element and trying to figure out what each of those meanings. Although I know a bunch of people try that or do that and often pretty successfully to my mind, uh, logically figure, you know, picking out all these clues and all these connections. Oh, I'm sure there are thousands of words at Reddit that everyone can click over to. Exactly. It's like they're all pulling like a room two, two thirty seven or something like that on it, basically to some degree or another, because it's largely speculation or something you put together. But, that the fact that they actually it's written in that way to leave you enough of those little breadcrumbs to keep asking those questions is really why it's brilliant 
Okay, so what's your take? In your mind, what happened during these final two episodes? <laughs> I don't know if this is a cynical view or not, but I popped on to I Am Dougie's discussion board last night right after it was over, like everybody else, and uh, <laughs> Tyler Foster's group. And uh, I was like, I, I was like, I just like, did they just retcon the entire first two seasons of this show out of existence? Because I'm pretty sure that's what they did. <laughs> and honestly, I think it's what um, they did too, but go on. You know, I feel like at first, I, <laughs> at first I was like, I feel like I got JJ'd, like, you know, but then I thought about it more as like, you know, the whole JR's not dead thing in Dallas. So I was like, I got JJ'd and JR'd at the same time. <laughs> JJ'd like, and JR'd. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a <laughs> right. It is. All, sure. all of a sudden she's not dead, you know, and I mean, I get, uh, and then, cause that was in 17 and I'm like, what the fuck is going on right now? And then the way it closes out on 18 and the reveal of, of what that, future or past or maybe present, whichever one it is that he's in, how that, you know, that you get there and Sarah Palmer, you know, never maybe ever lived there at that house at all, you know, with Leland and it was a Chalfont instead. Mm -hmm. I almost expected, well, the other one, you know, it's like another Chalfont, two Chalfonts. You know, I was waiting for that like little callback at least and they didn't mm -hmm. even do that. But like that it changes like the idea that anything ever happened in those first timing, who knows if, I mean, I mean, there's so many, that's exactly, it's like you start going a rabbit hole in your head, it's like, for all the situations that occurred in the first two seasons of the show, I mean, which one of them, ha which which happened and which didn't, you know, what, what in your head, what relationships still exist, but or in what, there's a different configuration now where people didn't even know each other ever. I mean, does that, doesn't that even kind of fuck with the, the chronology of the secret history of Twin Peaks in some way? Sure. If that's supposed to be canon, and then you have this ending that changes all that, I mean, I don't know where you go with that. Honestly, well, let me tell you what I think. I I think he absolutely prevented Laura Palmer's murder at the hands of Bob slash Leland. I think that happened. I think Cooper traveled yeah. back in time, prevented her from being murdered. I think that's clear. When I watched it last night, I assumed that you know evil forces sort of you know, kept her in the you know woods so that he couldn't pull her out of the woods and take her home. And that when he came back to Diane and was in a more modern time period, I assumed that was a rewritten timeline, that a new timeline had been launched since he had saved her life and they were now in an altered timeline. Right. Now, since reading stuff online, I think I'm now more convinced that they've been shuttered not just to an alternate timeline, but sort of an alternate side dimension entirely. Not right, just not not just plate. right, not just a rewritten timeline in the same dimension, but perhaps the next reality over. That her her soul, her spirit, Lara's essence had been carted over there to take her away from Cooper again, and then him and Diane went to find her. And I, that's actually fairly straightforward, actually, and uses some pretty common sci-fi stuff, you know, time travel and alternate timelines and sort of side dimensions. I mean, that's, you know what I mean? It's it's not too confusing, really, when you watch it. Right. That, and bear in mind, this is all still like the night after, even with some considerable thought, somewhat oh, right. speculative, almost knee-jerk kind of like, you know what I mean? Sure. It's like, we, I can't, like, like for example, okay, like, you were saying it's like there was somebody who was positing the idea that this was a happy ending. How did you see this as a happy ending? I, I kind of did <laughs> because she because, because she saved because wait, he did save her and she's not murdered. Now things did not go to as according to plan after that, and there's still clearly uh, an evil force at play here 
trying to keep her from him. Uh, So it's not like a full on happy ending, but he did change history. Her life is saved. Now, we don't know what's happening now. She thinks she's somebody else. You know, they're trapped in some version of reality that's clearly not home. So, I I mean, it's not like a Disney happy ending, but it's better than where they started from, which is Lara in a a plastic bag on the side of the river. Right. It's just like, and then, yeah, the way they manipulated some of that old footage uh, from the show and Firewalk Me, or just like we cut it to where, like, hey, Pete just walked by there because she, she was never dead. To it was begin really with, good, too, because it was really, it was really her. subtle. They didn't like overdo like the young Lara effect like Marvel would. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where they're right. showing off. It was like just enough to make you believe that I kind of figured was... what they were doing there was just like a bunch of like, you know, they gave her the old hair, so it kind of hid the you know, sides of her face. I don't think, I mean, I was like, I don't think there was any. Um, you didn't get that many close-up shots or anything like that, just to kind of, you know, trick the idea that she's still, even though these were, you know, newly shot scenes, that she still looked just like she did in the fire walking me footage or whatever. When he was leading her through the woods right before she disappeared, there were some shots with them both in the yeah. frame where she was in the background, sort of a little fuzzier, and he was the focus. But it looked like to me there might have been a little bit of CGI manipulation there to, to you know, de-age a fire a little bit. I mean, it looked convincing to me. I was just, I was thinking, I was seeing the, seeing the seam in it just by the technique of like, right. you know, I'm keeping her just a little. It, it, in the background it, or whatever, it wasn't. But, I mean, it wasn't overt. It wasn't overt. It was just enough to make it work, really. And the effect of it really wasn't about that. Uh, if that wasn't effect anyway, it was more like, what the hell is going on right now? Because you're, that's when. I mean, if you're locked in, I mean, that moment you're starting to really, you're beginning to realize. Um, that they're going to change everything, you know what I mean? So, I mean, the effect on her, you know, of how they pulled off her look really is almost secondary to, like, that what the hell's going on right now realization. So when you see stuff like Pete uh, fishing and not finding her and stuff like that, how does that change the whole timeline of the Martells and the horns and stuff, you know what I mean? Right. It's like that kind of, you know, the butterfly effect element to it that kind of gets your wheels spinning, you know, about everything you thought you knew. Right. And to that, in that regard, I think it's kind of brilliant. I, I see. I was happy with it. I you get sort of the marginally happy ending in the first part, and then the second part, you know, Lynch got a Lynch, and it gets dark, and it gets creepy, and it leaves you with, you know, dread and uneasiness. And people were like very upset that that's how how it ended. I saw a lot of people online who were shocked, who were angry, and I was just kind of like, have you never watched Twin yeah, Peaks? Have you never seen a David Lynch movie before? I mean, who's? Right. I mean, did anybody think there was going to be some big resolution with a bow on top? I certainly didn't. It's it's hard for me to like lock down on the way I feel about something for a little bit after, especially when it means as much sure. to me as this stuff does. And so I'm not I'm not apoplectic about it or angry about it or anything like that. I'm just I don't know how much I actually you know what I expected. Uh, and the expectations, and that's exactly the point where you're getting at. It's like having expectations out of Lynch is pretty much a fool's game. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, and I guess it goes back to like how they're playing with audience expectations. But really, you're right. I mean, it's, it's a creepy ending for mm-hmm. one thing. I mean, it's just it's a cliffhanger that feels actually a little more fully formed and satisfying than the way the second season ended. You know, I agree because that was just sort of a straight cliffhanger, whereas this one is a cliffhanger, but it feels like a thematically correct ending. Right, and that's where I mean that's where the Twilight Zone thing hit me a bunch too. I was like. Oh wow, really? I mean, you're kind of Rod Serling right now. It's like awesome, but were you shocked um, that the season yeah, ended on a cliffhanger? I mean, I guess I'm not shocked, but it was weird about the expectations thing and stuff like that because, like, when you got Diane back 
turns out that she was whatever this version of her was that was in the jail cell mm-hmm. that they used to make the tulpa of her out of or whatever, um, or whatever that represented, that character represented. Mm-hmm. I almost I was like, I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, if this show doesn't end with Diane and Cooper walking into the double R and getting some pie and coffee mm-hmm. and it's like a nice happy ending like that, I'm just going to be kind of upset. I don't know why I felt like that, but it's stupid. And, but then you didn't get that. So were, were you upset when you didn't get that? Uh, no, because what I got is like, was a perfect illustration of how stupid it was to think what I was thinking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Especially having watched like the previous 16 hours of the show. There's no way you were ever, I mean, like we said before, there was really no way that you were going to see where this was going until it was over. Right. And here we are. So, and I think that's what's brilliant about the show, especially is that not only it's going to, you know, inspire rewatching probably more than one time. And without the benefit of a week in between each of them, by the way. So, I mean, right. for some reason, I feel like um, those like those those parts that sag for you, I guess, right. in the middle episodes might not sag quite so much with the, you know, support of just the continuation of it. You know what I mean? If, the, if he was, I mean, if he was like structuring it like a movie, a 19, 18 hour movie, like you were saying, and, you know, those things are built in for... The, the the tone of the narrative or the momentum of the narrative, the pace of the narrative, if you're watching that in a row, basically, then yeah, it kind of the rigid structure of one hour acts a piece might, you know, yield you these maybe kind of boring episodes. They're ones, mm-hmm. the ones that don't, you know, much doesn't happen in. And that's just, you know, a byproduct of it being a TV show or presented as one at least. So I said on Twitter last night that there was one group of people who deserved to be pissed off, and that is Audrey Horn superfans. Yes. Uh, how surprised were you that her strange-ass little side story was not addressed in the final two episodes, not resolved? I mean, they, they give us the hint that everything we saw involving Audrey is not reality, that she's either in a mental ward or in a coma. There's all of these theories. Lynch tosses yeah. it out there, and then they never even... They don't don't go back to it at all in the final two episodes. Were you shocked about that? Shocked? No, disappointed. I guess. Right. Because. So you're you're an Audrey fan. Do you were an Audrey fan? I assume. Who wasn't? I oh, mean, of course. Sherman was easily the hottest girl on that show, and like uh, every, you know, Madge Navick was the hottest girl on the show, my friend. But but <laughs> no. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I mean, everybody had a everybody had a crush on Audrey big time. Sure. And. Uh, and then, you know, her character, I guess, on the original show, its arc was, you know, basically inherently a sweet, innocent right. girl playing at something bigger than that. And when oh, she, gets, she had a crush on Cooper and she on Cooper, but then she was, you know, the one eyed Jack's trying to, you know, pull a hardy girl kind of thing or whatever. Right. Nancy Drew, if you will. And, and, and you know, but you know, once she gets over her head, you realize just how innocent she actually is. I mean, she doesn't she's a virgin when she has sex with John Justice Wheeler. So, like. And then, of course, the explosion at the end. So let's clarify that, Joe. So the end of the original series, she's like in a bank explosion and we don't know what happens to her. And then right. in Fire Walk With Me, I believe she shot scenes, she but dead. they were cut from the movie. So mm-hmm. it was like a big deal yeah, that Audrey – it was a big deal that Sherilyn Finn was going to be in this in this third season as Audrey. Right. I don't think I don't think most people thought Audrey even survived the second season until they saw she was going to be in this one. Right. You know? I mean, there's stuff in the secret history about her living, but not everybody read that. So you could debate whether that's canon or not, anyway. But secret history? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I guess it is, but I, I, I tend to only go by. The, I haven't read any of the books, so 
Well, I know Lynch doesn't really have anything to do with any right. of that stuff. Right, so you take Lynch Again, out. I, I mean, I know it's Frost. I was but, thinking, but if anybody is the, still the still like sort of the you know the librarian for all that sort of historical fact or the connections they made while they were writing the stuff together, it should be Mark Frost. I sure. Mean. It's just a lot, it has a much smaller audience. The books. Right. But right, anyway, exactly. so they bring Audrey back. It's a big deal. She's shoved in this weird, really weird storyline in the back end of the series that kind of ends in its own little mini cliffhanger and then is never addressed again. It's very odd. I would call it a super annoying storyline, actually, that feels like some version of, like, it seemed like that whole point, you know, or effort to bring her back didn't pay off in any way that it's kind of like the Dorn storyline in Game of Thrones or something. You know what I mean? It's like it didn't it's, need to be there. You know, you know? It, it came in late, but it tallied up to a half hour of screen time or something that went nowhere. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, it feels like a waste of time. It could not have existed. Nothing would have changed. And it would only, you know, if you, and, if, and if you were curious about, like, what exactly happened to her, that, you know, you're not going to get any payoff there at all because they don't really tell you. Although, I mean, I guess really the, the pinnacle of all that is when they finally do get to the roadhouse and you get... To see her do the you Audrey get, dance right, there, you get the, the dance. Before, yeah, because at that point, I guess the dream, the dream logic thing that mm-hmm. you kind of feel because it's part of built into his style. That's when you know, oh, okay, this maybe not really is not happening, and this is all a construct of her imagination that she's been in this coma ever since the bank explosion, and and is this now waking up? And maybe that's your resolution. She woke up. Who knows? Right. But it seems like a short-changed one, definitely. So Audrey's storyline got left up in the air. Of course, there's the giant cliffhanger with with Cooper and Laura stuck in some sort of alternate dimension. So talk automatically turns to, well, is there any chance this stuff gets resolved? Uh, In your mind, what are the odds that there will be a fourth season? And do we even want or need one? I don't necessarily want a fourth season or need one. I don't know if the people do. I mean, I guess you'd have to ask fans um, or like consult Showtime on their ratings or something. But, ratings were um, not great. Ratings were – it was not one of their highest-rated shows. So. I mean, in the press so far, they've been like, you know, they were really happy. We got the most subscribers ever, like, mm-hmm. going online at the same time to, you know, it was a record for them. Uh, how many of them stuck around or stuck it out past the free trial? Who knows? And then also the fact that, you know, they're just like, yeah, if he wants to do some more, we're open to doing anything else he wants to do. So, I mean, they, they've, they've made it seem like a pretty friendly, amiable balls in your court thing if he wants to do more Twin Peaks stuff for them. Um I don't know that I'd need a series. I think it would be cool just to have like a nice fire walk with me style post movie. Another film. Yeah. Just a straight up movie. I don't think we need a fourth season. I think this was pretty close to a perfect ending for the show. Um, I I mean, look, David Lynch is in his seventies now, or I think 70. So, I mean, there's that to consider. If there's one thing that's in favor of it maybe happening is that – and this is just a guess because he doesn't really give a lot of interviews. He doesn't talk about the show that much. But I'm just going to totally, based on no knowledge, guess that David Lynch had a really good time doing this and got to work yeah. and got to work with all of his favorite actors and had, and had no meddling from Showtime whatsoever – and right. I, I just total spitballing right. guess. I bet it's one of the best work experiences of his career. And you know, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't discount like his age or anything like that. I mean, Ridley Scott's in his eighties, and he just keeps on pumping shit out and, left and right. I don't. I mean, I mean, maybe he'll drop dead one day, like in the middle of shooting a movie. But and we I don't saw what. Like, and we saw what George Miller just did at age seventy with Fury Road. Right. So and it, even yeah, Lynch says something like that, like in that, in that last episode or the next last episode, um, whatever they were talking about. 
he, he had the gun and he was like, I couldn't do it. Like shoot Diane. Right. And, uh, Albert says, you're going soft. He's like, not where it counts, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying 20%. We get a season four or some sort of follow-up movie. I'm putting it at 20%. I just, I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. No, I don't think so either. Not, I mean, not I likely, said, but possible. Like a follow-up movie in the vein of fire walk with me that maybe gets into some of the more esoteric stuff that, you know, like the, you know, the stuff on blue mountain and, and, uh, that involves like maybe more of like what Colonel Briggs was up to and stuff like that. I mean, it just gets more into the mythology. It like gets crazy about it. Kind of like fire walk with me did a little bit, but uh, instead of yeah. involving itself, with the last seven days of Laura Palmer, it involves itself with, you know, you know, maybe, maybe it could be just like, a, a more esoteric, arty piece of work like the eighth episode was or something. Right. Know? Yeah. Listen, if it comes, I'm watching. I'm there if it happens. Right. I just don't think the odds are that good. For no, I don't, I don't. I mean, I don't say I don't think any of that is particularly likely. All right, Joe. Most surprisingly great thing about this season of Twin Peaks. I'll tell you what mine is. Man. I'll go first. You want to hear what mine okay, is? Okay, good, good, good. I would have never. I would have bet my house. I would have never guessed in a million years that one of my favorite things about the revival of Twin Peaks would be fucking Jim Belushi and Robert Nepper <laughs> playing heart of gold buffoonish crime bosses. But I was delighted every t- every scene those two guys were in. Delighted. Right. It was absolutely uh, when it started to sag in the middle and some of those episodes I totally weren't wasn't on board with. The show would always pick up when those two guys were in it. The Mitchums were your favorite, basically. Right. Oh man! I mean, that how great choice. were they? How great were they? I mean, I love that oh, stuff. Belushi is such a bro all the time, and you know the other one's so kind of cautious. It's like, but they're, they, I mean, sorry, I mean, I guess they've done terrible things, or they're capable really, of doing. They're like crime things. lords. They're gangsters, but, you never but see them do anything terrible. No, you know what I mean. So it's like, it's <laughs> so yeah. There's a, there's a definite amiable uh, sweetheartedness to them that I was kind of wondering how much being around Dougie actually contributes to that because when it, during the Dougie thing, it just seemed like because of his inherent just force like glow of you know radiant goodness that he would inadvertently wind up changing things for the better even for the Mitchums. I mean that's why they're so happy with him and stuff right. like that and that being around. This person, I mean, even even Janie starts out to be more of a shrew when, you know, because she's sick of the original Dougie. She doesn't know there's this new one, you know, and then over the course of time, she becomes more and more, uh, you know, gentle and understanding with him. And, she, you know, she fucks him. It's a, and that's another thing. I don't know if you noticed this, but Coop seems like his girl's going cowgirl. <laughs> Just, he does. It's I don't know. If that's a, I don't know if that's an important detail about this show, but the well, two times <laughs> It's true, but also two totally different. I mean, the first big Cooper sex scene is pretty much played for straight comedy, and then yeah. and then the one with the, the one with Diane's kind of creepy, a little bit disturbing. He almost like his face almost relaxes into the evil Cooper face during it. It's kind of a right. strange scene. And that's another thing. Yeah, exactly. This is one of these reasons I want to, I need to watch this shit again because um, you know I think there was like once he walked through the door, there might have been another like sort of emergence of sorts. Because you do start to see, and his like level of detail, each of those performances as Dougie and Evil Coop are so like you know specific that I, I don't think it's any kind of accident that you start seeing that mixed together for some reason, you know. Or you know maybe that's uh, just the way Cooper fucks. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> 
I, I, I think, I mean, if you get close to anything, I think it's the Dougie version. I think Cooper's probably just got that blissful smile on his face every time he's getting laid or something. Right. I don't know. But again, I, I don't think that's a really important plot detail. I don't either. Um, I had seen some people talking about online about, well, does Evil Cooper come back at any of these points? I think at most it was just a, a, maybe a little bit of a hint that, you know, Evil Cooper came from part of Cooper. There's some shade of his personality that influenced what evil cooper ended up being and maybe at most i think it was a hint toward that but i think that some sort of like virgins occurred right stepping into this dimensional i think they've kind of set up that whenever you do the black and white stuff like where you find the place where you find philip jeffries for some it feels like a different place than the black lodge or or you know the waiting room or white lodge or the purple place i haven't still not entirely sure what that was right um it's like it felt like a different alternate dimension again so who knows right all right <laughs> what year what year are you in it could have been 1956 again i guess it wasn't because you know there's too many modern cars but i mean once you ask that year it's like i want that's the thing i want to go back and like look and see what model well i guess <laughs> i i didn't even notice this when i watched but i read online that i guess when he comes out of the hotel the car and the hotel have changed from when they went in and I, I didn't. See. I didn't even notice that when I watched it. Right. But apparently um, that's exactly. a thing that happened. Yeah. All right. What about uh, what about the worst tangent the season took? Because I mean, you have to admit that there were Audrey. Uh, you think it was Audrey? Yeah. I, I think it might have been. Uh, who's the kid? The Horn kid, Richard Horn, or oh, uh, oh, Richard. Yeah. Yeah, Rich. I did not like the Richard Horn stuff. I don't know. To me, that I mean, it didn't pay off in certain ways because I never got the sense. It didn't pay ever... off at all. I mean, he's just dispatched well, I mean, of in two it, seconds. It kind of did. It's, it kind of did. I'll tell you why. Because that guy was a major asshole, and he got fried hardcore in a, like a trap that had been set for evil Coop. Right. And he used it as like a little test money to make sure that you know he wasn't going to get fried himself. And it just it happened. It just happened very <laughs> quick. I was never yeah, really like a, I was never really interested when he was on screen and and then he finally meets his dad, Evil Cooper, and it's just dealt with so quickly and so matter of factly. And it's and the whole I, parentage thing never the whole parentage bit about him. Right. It's not like John's so fascinating or anything. But that never got that wasn't. I mean, that, I can see how you would say that would be like the main reason for him to exist is to ask the question, "Who's your dad?" or whatever, or if or if you are in fact Audrey's son. Um, which I guess but, he was right, but yeah, they don't really get so. into it. They don't, <laughs> yeah, I, they don't really spell it out or spend a lot of time on it. But I think he was like also sort of, um, which I think probably if anything is another, I don't know if you call it a tangent or just like that doesn't pay off or it was just a background thing that never was supposed to, or didn't matter. But the whole drug problem thing yeah, with that special synthetic Chinese drug or whatever, right. Um, that Chad was apparently selling and the and Balthazar Getty was involved with that, and they have that one scene with Richard where they're in a room with the biggest flat screen ever, looking at like I can't remember what they're watching, but but it hints at this like bigger syndicate thing that never really pays out. I mean, you know, with Jacques Renault still being there at the Roadhouse, and you get the sense that there was probably still some sort of connection there uh, between drug running and and the and the roadhouse still, but it's never another. And I don't know if that's supposed to matter or if it's like if something even planned on it being a, another plot thread, you know, that pays off somehow. But it feels like it almost didn't even need to be there too, which is half the reason why Richard's involved. I and guess. then so, the, there's also yeah. the stuff with like uh, 
uh, Amanda Seyfried and Alicia Witt and and that guy and it's like I I don't know about any of that either. That just felt like more padding. Yeah, than yeah. Ultimately. Because he, he killed himself, right? He shot himself yes. by the tree or something. Right. It, like yeah. you just hear the shot and Alicia Witt crying, and that's like the whole end of that storyline. Right. And then I guess they get found because the dude played by actually Mark Frost, but walking his dog goes to Harry Dean Stanton to tell him about some crazy kids in the woods. Yeah, I mean, some of those things didn't resolve in any in a way that felt like they felt a little perfunctory, I guess. Like um, you know, Tim Roth and and although it's an awesome scene at least. All right. But. Tim Roth and and, uh, and Jennifer Jason Lee's characters, the way they go out after really not accomplishing much, anything. I guess they kill a couple of people that you didn't care about, but that's about it, really. I, they bothered I mean, me less just things. because I really like those actors and because I thought those scenes were pretty funny. Oh, sure. Right. Oh, yeah. And then, and then, yeah, the way they went out, that was, I mean, that was a pretty great scene. You could easily argue that you can cut all this stuff out and whittle it down from 18 episodes to 13, and it may have been stronger for it. Wasn't the but original run supposed to be nine? Yes. That's probably what it should have been. But, I mean, I guess you can always argue that. that Twin Peaks as a whole is about the American small-town tapestry and how, you know, evil and misdeeds lurk in all the various corners. You know what I mean? Where it's kind of like the, the city is, you know, the town of Twin Peaks as a whole is a character and suburban America as a whole is a character. And I guess you can argue that's where all these little pieces fit in. I mean, definitely. I mean, those are, again themes that uh and motifs that he's been indulging in his entire career to some degree or another so um i mean obviously i, I mean we were talking about that the other night it's like blue velvet what's i mean what's his best movie and everybody you know for the most part everybody's like blue velvet that's it that's the number one i personally have like a soft spot for wild at heart but in terms of i think the movie he's he might be most his most mainstream film ironically enough um outside of like something like straight story mm-hmm. which is acceptable to anyone um but the one that you know had the the most cultural impact for him um, and is arguably his best film is, I mean, that's so, um, it's completely about that. That's the whole, right. that's the whole film that, that what lies underneath thing and stuff mm-hmm. under that, you know, veneer of, of, you know, polite society and humanity and, you know, everything is safe and good. You know? Well, Joe, thank, I hope things stay safe and good with you. Thanks for joining me tonight. Yeah, um, it was great, man. Um, I hope we kind of mine some interesting thoughts about all this stuff because ah. I mean, there's just like I said, there's so many rabbit holes you can go down with this stuff. So it's like, and, and I'm sure we will. I mean, people are going to be talking about that last hour for a long time. I think. And yeah, and so, I know, I know, I know. I'm looking forward to watching it again, like in a more sequential, like not waiting a week in between them sort of format, and you know, and to catch all these things. And I mean, yeah, we'll be. We'll be probably talking about this again at some point, not too far away. Joe, once again, tell the good people listening where they can find you online. Oh, uh, Joe Shansky uh, on Facebook, Joe Shansky on Instagram. I guess I'm the same on Twitter um, as well. Go check them out, TulsaBoys.com. Okay, thanks, Joe. I'll catch you next time. All right, man. Take care. It was good talking to you. That's going to do it for this episode. I want to thank Joe Oshansky for joining me. Again, you can just search him down online or you can find his work at the Tulsa Voice. I want to thank you all for listening. If you want to keep listening and not miss the next episode, you should go subscribe to us at iTunes or wherever you go for your podcasting needs. And that next episode is coming sooner than you might think, as it looks like Terrence Abar will be coming back to the show next week to discuss the new adaptation of Stephen King's It with me. So you're not going to want to miss that one. 
While you're at iTunes, we wouldn't mind it if you left us a nice review or maybe go find some other ways to spread the word about our show. We always appreciate the support. But until next time, you all take care and keep on watching the good stuff. Oh, 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 oh,